0: Letter 23 My dear Wormwood Through this girl and her disgusting family the patient is now getting to know more Christians every day and very intelligent Christians too For a long time it will be quite impossible to remove spirituality from his life Very well then, we must corrupt it no doubt you have often practiced transforming yourself into an angel of light as a parade ground exercise. Now is the time to do it in the face of the enemy. The world and the flesh have failed us, a third power remains, and success of this third kind is the most glorious of all. A spoiled saint, a Pharisee, an inquisitor, or a magician makes better sport in hell than a mere common tyrant or debauchee. Looking around your patient's new friends, I find that the best point of attack would be the borderline between theology and politics. Several of his new friends are very much alive to the social implications of their religion. That in itself is a bad thing, but good can be made out of it. You will find that a good many Christian political writers think that Christianity began going wrong and departing from the doctrine of its founder at a very early stage. Now this idea must be used by us to encourage once again the conception of a historical Jesus to be found by clearing away later accretions and perversions and then to be contrasted with the whole Christian tradition. In the last generation, we promoted the construction of such a historical Jesus on liberal and humanitarian lines. We are now putting forward a new historical Jesus on Marxian, catastrophic, and revolutionary lines. The advantages of these constructions, which we intend to change every 30 years or so, are manifold. In the first place, they all tend to direct men's devotion to something which does not exist, for each historical Jesus is unhistorical. The documents say what they say and cannot be added to, Each new historical Jesus, therefore, has to be got out of them by suppression at one point and exaggeration at another, and by that sort of guessing, brilliant is the adjective we teach humans to apply to it, on which no one would risk ten shillings in ordinary life, but which is enough to produce a crop of new Napoleons, new Shakespeare's, and new Swift's in every publisher's autumn list. In the second place, all such constructions place the importance of their historical Jesus in some peculiar theory he is supposed to have promulgated. He has to be a great man in the modern sense of the word, one standing at the terminus of some centrifugal and unbalanced line of thought, a crank vending a panacea. We thus distract men's minds from who he is and what he did. We first make him solely a teacher, and then conceal the very substantial agreement between his teachings and those of all other great moral teachers. For humans must not be allowed to notice that all great moralists are sent by the enemy not to inform men but to remind them, to restate the primeval moral platitudes against our continual concealment of them. We make the sophists... He raises up a Socrates to answer them. Our third aim is, by these constructions, to destroy the devotional life. For the real presence of the enemy, otherwise experienced by men in prayer and sacrament, we substitute a mere probable, remote, shadowy, and uncouth figure, one who spoke a strange language and died a long time ago. Such an object cannot in fact be worshipped. Instead of the creator adored by its creature, you soon have merely a leader acclaimed by a partisan, and finally a distinguished character approved by a judicious historian. And fourthly, besides being unhistorical in the Jesus it depicts, religion of this kind is false to history in another sense. No nation, and few individuals, are really brought into the enemy's camp by the historical study of the biography of Jesus, simply as biography. Indeed, materials for a full biography have been withheld from men. The earliest converts were converted by a single historical fact, the resurrection, and a single theological doctrine, the redemption, operating on a sense of sin which they already had and sin, not against some new fancy dress law produced as a novelty by a great man, but against the old platitudinous universal moral law which they had been taught by their nurses and mothers. The Gospels come later and were written not to make Christians but to edify Christians already made. The historical Jesus then, however dangerous he may seem to be to us at some particular point, is always to be encouraged. About the general connection between Christianity and politics, our position is more delicate. Certainly, we do not want men to allow their Christianity to flow over into their political life, for the establishment of anything like a really just society would be a major disaster. On the other hand, we do want, and want very much, to make men treat Christianity as a means, preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement, but failing that as a means to anything, even to social justice. The thing to do is to get a man at first to value social justice as a thing which the enemy demands, and then work him onto the stage at which he values Christianity because it may produce social justice for the enemy will not be used as a convenience. Men or nations who think they can revive the faith in order to make a good society might just as well think they can use the stairs of heaven as a shortcut to the nearest chemist's shop. Fortunately, it is quite easy to coax humans round this little corner. Only today I have found a passage in a Christian writer where he recommends his own version of Christianity on the ground that only such a faith can outlast the death of old cultures and the birth of new civilizations. You see the little rift? Believe this, not because it is true, but for some other reason. That's the game. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Letter 24 My dear Wormwood, I have been in correspondence with Slum Trimpet, who is in charge of your patient's young woman, and begin to see the chink in her armor. It is an unobtrusive little vice which she shares with nearly all women who have grown up in an intelligent circle, united by a clearly defined belief, and it consists in a quite untroubled assumption that the outsiders who do not share this belief are really too stupid and ridiculous. The males who habitually meet these outsiders do not feel that way. Their confidence, if they are confident, is of a different kind. Hers, which she supposes to be due to faith, is in reality largely due to the mere color she has taken from her surroundings. It is not, in fact, very different from the conviction that she would have felt at the age of ten that the kind of fish knives used in her father's house were the proper or normal or real kind, while those of the neighboring families were not real fish knives at all. Now the element of ignorance and naivety in this is so large and the element of spiritual pride so small that it gives us little hope of the girl herself, but have you thought of how it can be made to influence your own patient? It is always the novice who exaggerates. The man who has risen in society is over-refined, the young scholar is pedantic, In this new circle, your patient is a novice. He is there daily meeting Christian life of a quality he never before imagined, and seeing it all through an enchanted glass because he is in love. He is anxious, indeed the enemy commands him, to imitate this quality. Can you get him to imitate this defect in his mistress, and to exaggerate it until what was venial in her becomes in him the strongest and most beautiful of the vices? Spiritual pride. The conditions seem ideally favourable. The new circle in which he finds himself is one of which he is tempted to be proud for many reasons other than its Christianity. It is a better educated, more intelligent, more agreeable society than any he has yet encountered. He is also under some degree of illusion as to his own place in it. Under the influence of love, he may still think himself unworthy of the girl, but he is rapidly ceasing to think himself unworthy of the others. He has no notion how much in him is forgiven because they are charitable and made the best of because he is now one of the family. He does not dream how much of his own conversion, how many of his own opinions, are recognized by them all as mere echoes of their own. Still less does he suspect how much of the delight he takes in these people is due to the erotic enchantment which the girl for him spreads over all her surroundings. He thinks that he likes their talk and way of life because of some congruity between their spiritual state and his, when in fact they are so far beyond him that if he were not in love he would be merely puzzled and repelled by much which he now accepts. He is like a dog which should imagine it understood firearms because its hunting instinct and love for its master enable it to enjoy a day's shooting. Here is your chance. While the enemy, by means of sexual love and of some very agreeable people far advanced in his service, is drawing the young barbarian up to levels he could never otherwise have reached, you must make him feel that he is finding his own level, that these people are his sort, and that, coming among them, he has come home. When he turns from them to other society, he will find it dull partly because almost any society within his reach is, in fact, much less entertaining, but still more because he will miss the enchantment of the young woman. You must teach him to mistake his contrast between the circle that delights and the circle that bores him for the contrast between Christians and unbelievers. He must be made to feel, he'd better not put it into words, how different we Christians are, and by we Christians he must really, but unknowingly, mean my-set, And by my set, he must mean not the people who in their charity and humility have accepted me, but the people with whom I associate by right. Success here depends on confusing him. If you try to make him explicitly and professedly proud of being a Christian, you will probably fail. The enemy's warnings are too well known. If, on the other hand, you let the idea of we Christians drop out altogether and merely make him complacent about his set, you will produce not true spiritual pride but mere social vanity, which, by comparison, is a trumpery, puny little sin. What you want is to keep a sly self-congratulation mixing with all his thoughts, and never allow him to raise the question, what precisely am I congratulating myself about? The idea of belonging to an inner ring, of being in a secret, is very sweet to him. Play on that nerve. Teach him, using the influence of this girl when she is silliest, to adopt an air of amusement at the things the unbelievers say. Some theories which he may meet in modern Christian circles may here prove helpful. Theories, I mean, that place the hope of society in some inner ring of clerks, some trained minority of theocrats. It is no affair of yours whether those theories are true or false. The great thing is to make Christianity a mystery religion in which he feels himself one of the initiates. Pray, do not fill your letters with rubbish about this European war. Its final issue is no doubt important, but that is a matter for the High Command. I am not in the least interested in knowing how many people in England have been killed by bombs. In what state of mind they died, I can learn from the office at this end that they were going to die sometime I knew already. Please keep your mind on your work. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape.